All right, Pastor Mark Driscoll here with a good friend of mine, uh, David Middlebrook, and uh, we've known each other for some years, and I'm going to start with uh, a little bit of a story to tee up our conversation, and in my opinion, David is the best guy to call for church law, policy, architecting. Some years ago, I was reading a, um, a leadership book, and there were two guys standing kind of on a dock looking at a huge cruise ship. And one guy looked at the other guy and asked, in regard to that boat, who is the most important person? And the one guy said, like most of us would say, well, it's the captain. And the other guy said, no, it's the boat builder. <laughs> the moral of the story is you can have a great captain, but if the boat is poorly built, you can't navigate it, especially through a storm. And so, David, I'm very honored to have you. And what I want to talk about is how to build the boat. And from a legal standpoint, from a practical standpoint, because you could be a great leader, great pastor, great Bible teacher, and if the boat ain't built right, it doesn't matter how good the captain is. And so you, you've given your whole life to helping pastors and churches and ministries get architected and protected. So maybe just introduce a little bit about yourself, and maybe just for those who are pastors, kind of your heart, and I know your story as a friend, how you kind of got into this business of church law. Sure. Well, Pastor Mark, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a great honor to be a part of your leadership series. And uh, as far as how I got uh, in this business, so to speak, I was, uh, and a lot of people say this, this is absolutely the truth. I teethed on the back of a church pew. My first memory on this planet was lying underneath the church pew. My grandmother had a little butterscotch lifesaver uh, that she was rubbing to keep me quiet. My grandfather was preaching. My other grandfather was sitting behind him in one of those big king chairs, you know, they used to have. And my mom was playing the organ. And I thought, <laughs> church is the greatest place on the planet. I yeah. love church. And I would have been a sixth-generation pastor uh, going way, way back and trace all that back. And uh, it was just a given that I was going to be in ministry, uh, in pulpit ministry. And kind of on a lark, I told my dad, I said, hey, I really think I want to go to law school. Uh, he was all about, you know, education and experience and all that. And I had just done a gig at, at IBM. And I said, I think I want to go to law school. He said, once you do that, then you go off to seminary. And I'm in law school. My uh, second year of law school, I'm clerking. And the firm that I work at has got a big church um, thing going on. And if I were to say the name, everybody would have known it. But, it was but it's a case. It was a case at the time that they took on? A big case. And uh, the guy that was... Uh, uh, the head of the ministry. I mean, I'd heard about him my whole life. And, and I, I realized in the middle of this that that he knew the Bible, but he didn't know how to run a church or a ministry. He didn't know church law. And that was the aha moment for me. And that began the beginning, the journey for me. Uh, and, and I feel like I'm in ministry. I'm not in pulpit ministry, but I'm in ministry and I serve pastors and churches and parachurch organizations in helping them, as you said, architect to make sure that their structure, uh, the, the organization itself is, is well conceived and executed upon and, and so many other things. And, and I will say, um, I, I think that because we have so many freedoms in our country, uh, sometimes we, we, we take gr for granted the freedom we have, particularly in this area that we're talking about, the freedom of religion. Okay, the First Amendment, the Constitution, the right to do it our way, that we don't take the time to do it the right way. 
And so you find yourself, we've well, got a client, and you're like going, you guys have got it going on, but you get out the governing documents, for example, and you start reading it, and you're like, this is an absolute disaster. It's a mess. Uh, sometimes people don't even know what their own governing documents say. Uh, so that's just the beginning of uh, my process and my journey in terms of just falling in love and serving the kingdom of God uh, through being an attorney. And uh, that's how I got started. So I appreciate you sharing that because a lot of pastors are like, I don't know, attorney, you know, you're, you, you're generations of ministry. And what we're finding today in the hostile uh, legal, social media, PR, liability, same-sex marriage, all the issues, employment issues, discrimination issues, who can use your building for a wedding, these are all architecting decisions. And what I would say is most pastors who are hearing this, they would never move their family into a home that was not architected. If you're going to go buy a house for your family, okay, tell me about this house. Well, we didn't really hire an architect. We didn't really hire any engineers. You know, we just kind of sketched it out on paper and added on to it over time. You would never move your family in. But that's exactly how most churches are architected. So why would you put God's family in a proverbial house that's not architected, knowing that they're going to be in danger and they're in harm's way? And so what, what you're talking about is working on the organization. Pastors work in the organization, but really it's the limitations of the organization that really can sometimes handcuff the leader from actually doing things. And right now with COVID and race riots and closures and masks and all the complexity, a lot of guys, they were able to overcome some of their governance problems because of their relationships. I was having lunch with a mutual friend of ours some years ago, Pastor Chris Hodges, and he, he said something really brilliant. He said, a church is two things. It's relationships and governance structure. He said, if you have bad governance, you can work around it through your relationships. If you have bad relationships, your governance can, can fix them. But if you have bad governance and bad relationships, you're dead. <laughs> and I think a lot of guys didn't have good governance, but they sort of worked around it with the relationships. And now with all the complexity we're dealing with, they're seeing that their governance structure is broken, their board is fighting, their team is divided. It's hard to make decisions. The staff is not on board. The pastor doesn't know what to do. And I think this is a crucial, critical issue. So I appreciate your heart. I've known you for some years and love and appreciate you've helped a lot of people. And that includes a gateway. So maybe explain a little bit the Gateway Network and Pastor Robert Morris and Jimmy Evans, who are my overseers, and you helped us architect the church and the ministry. And so, you know, I know who you are. But for those who maybe <laughs> don't, uh, I'm going to give you an occasion just to sort of disclose that. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And uh, my lovely wife, Christina, is out grabbing pizzas for me right now. So she comes busting through the door here in a minute. That's what that's about. Uh, but uh, wonderful marriage, uh, wonderful life in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, we are members at Gateway and have been um, just so honored to have a part of everything that has taken place there over the years and see that phenomenal growth. But but the one thing that I, people will ask me, you know, because we kind of have the ultimate backstage pass in our firm on ministry, you get to see so much, the good and the bad, sometimes the ugly. Uh, but what, what differentiates the good from maybe the mediocre even? And I would say that, uh, of course, setting aside good theology, I would say also a commitment to excellence in the organization. 
And we talked a minute ago just about governing documents. I'm going to not try to harp on that too much, but it's hard to get away from it because from a legal standpoint, governing documents, uh, the, the articles of incorporation, the bylaws are the foundation legally mm-hmm. for the house. And we, you know, I live in Texas and we had some bad soil issues in Texas and it doesn't matter how elaborate and beautiful the house is. You got a bad foundation, you got a bad house. And so, so I, I just appreciated their early on their commitment to really focusing on something that a lot of people, oh, that sounds kind of boring, man. Let's get into the word. Let's go talk about the next event, et cetera. And they skip over this critically important part, and that's the foundational documents. Amen. I always tell folks, you know, why, they, why do you call them bylaws? Well, it's, it's an old English phrase. It goes back to the uh, living in the village with the you know, nodding Nottingham uh, and the sheriff and all that. And they would have the rules of the village and they would post them on a post. And those are the laws by which you had to live. Hmm. Well, that's what bylaws are. They're the laws by which you have to live. And back to the freedoms that we have in our country, uh, we have the freedom, thank God, uh, in the First Amendment with free exercise that we have the rights in the, in the First Amendment to, to have free exercise in our religion. We have the right to establish and to architect that correctly. But it takes some time and some thoughtfulness. And uh, another thing that I tell folks about uh, governing documents is they, 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 should, they should reflect. If you stand in the mirror and hold them up, they should reflect who you are, uh, not your buddy or not somebody down the street or not something you got offline, but they should reflect who you are because at the end of the day, those are the laws by which you're going to be judged and you're going to have to govern yourself. So um, that's a long way around to say uh, that's something that I love so much about Pastor Robert and Gateway and the leadership, Pastor Tom, uh, just all, all the guys there early on, such a commitment to getting it right. Pastor Chris, another example of just a commitment to getting it right. Before they were big and great, they had to take the time to get it right. And so that, that's one thing that I would say is a differentiator. Yeah, Pastor Robert told me one time, he's like, if you're going to build high, you better dig deep. <laughs> Meaning the bigger you intend to go, the stronger that foundation needs to be. And so, you know, just practically, I mean, I'm, I'm seminary educated. I'm kind of a Bible nerd. So most guys go to seminary and they're like, I really want all the Bible stuff. I'm a total Bible nerd, not 100% agree with that. And then seminary started adding a lot of leadership, which is totally good. The thing they still haven't added is governance hmm. and the legal. Yeah. And so... Um, for example, when I started our ministry, it was Mark Driscoll Ministries, it's now Real Faith, I just posted a website, started giving away Bible teaching, and it just said, hey, you know, if you give a gift, we're a 501c3, and you, you get a tax deduction, some statement. I got multiple emails from multiple senior, grad, getting ready to graduate, final year of studies, from multiple seminaries who were graduating to be senior pastors. They read that, and they sent me an email and said, uh, what's a 501c3? Hmm. We're looking at guys who are getting ready to be the legal president of a corporation that has a 501c3 IRS designation, and they don't know what it is. Yeah. I mean, imagine a guy graduating from business school and he's like, so what's a business? (laughs) And so, and what happens is we tend to think that's the secular stuff and it's not. When Nehemiah does all of his architecting, that's governance. Um, When it says that 
in the Bible, we're supposed to be overseers. That's governance. When it says that Jesus is Lord and a king with a kingdom, that's all governance. And uh, and so within that, um, for those who may not know, um, in, and correct me if I'm wrong, David, I've only seen two books written on church law. Is that correct? There's two main schools of thought. Yeah, that's probably in terms of in terms of what, what you're describing here today, I'd say that's probably right. There's not very many. Uh, if so there's more. my experience, it's you, David Middlebrook, and a man named Richard Ammer that I don't know and not going to speak pejoratively or negatively of. But really, then, if you're if you're a ministry leader, there kind of are two philosophical schools of architecting. He is largely connected with the Assemblies of God. You're associated with Gateway. And I've done the research on both. I've come to my own conclusions, which is why I'm interviewing you, um, <laughs> because I think that um, the days, if you're going to own property, if you're going to hire and fire people, if you're going to officiate weddings, you better have yourself buttoned up. And uh, a lot of our churches right now around the country, they're renting buildings and they have no place to meet. If they preach certain issues, they know they're going to get kicked out of their rental. I mean, it's, it's just, it is absolutely a very complicated time in any, in every way. But let me ask you as an attorney, you come in oftentimes to churches when it's a problem. So sometimes you get brought in early to build the house and you did that for us and it's going great. So thank you. Other times the house is on fire and you get called in like the fire department to find the hose. Right. When you go into churches without naming any, what are the most common issues, the most common problems, the most preventable things that a pastor could or should have done to not get into that painful place? Well, I think um, one of the most common things is not understanding who's in charge. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's the legal right to be in charge and then there's being influential within an organization. And, and oftentimes pastors, again, kind of skip over the governing document piece and they don't understand exactly how all that works. I understand that. It's not fun reading. Uh, it's not fun to dive in to think about all that, but they'll skip over that. And they think because they're influential within the organization that they must be in charge. And then they wake up to this oftentimes a a very <laughs> dramatic realization that they may be influential, uh, but they are definitely not in charge. And someone's trying to take charge of their ministry of the church, of the organization. And so that, that's one thing that we encounter, you know, regularly. Um, there's many other types of things, but if we're going on the vein of, of organizational governance, that would be one thing that I'd say is very, very common. The board, uh, you know, there'll be a, a board battle, a, a, a some issue it could be a moral failure and how are you going to remedy that moral failure? Is there an opportunity for that to be addressed? How do you go about addressing it? Who's in charge? I mean, really it comes to that central theme. Who's in charge? And uh, oftentimes people just don't realize who it is and are oftentimes disappointed to find out it's not who they thought it was. Yeah. So we, uh, with our friends at Gateway, they use the language a lot of singular headship and plural leadership. Uh, Pastor Tom and uh, Pastor Robert, Pastor Jimmy, which I really like because the Trinity, the God's governance, singular head, the Father, plural leaders, Father, Son, and Spirit. We know who's in charge. Jesus comes to the earth. He's the head of the church, and he has plural leaders through human leaders in the church. Uh, there are senior leaders appointed in local churches and apostolic leaders over them. And oftentimes what happens in a church, it's like, well, we're, we're a leadership team or a board until there's a conflict between the pastor and the board. And then the question is, 
Who's in charge? And that's where the conflict can come because if it's not clear who the leader is, then it sort of becomes Lord of the Flies, it, it just a battle, you know, to the bitter end. And and usually it's the pastor versus the board or a board member. And I saw that locally here. I won't say the name, but I moved into town and I met with literally had coffee with over a hundred pastors in Arizona before we planted just to shake hands and be friends and try to build good relationships and get there. Welcome to the city. And I talked to one guy about governance and I said, well, what's your governance? He said, oh, I don't know. I don't worry about that. I'm the Bible guy. I'm the teacher. You know, I'm not the legal authority, you know, structure guy. I was like, well, who's the chairman of the board? He said, well, this other guy said, well, are you a voting member of the board? He said, well, I'm on the board, but I'm a non-voting member. I'm like, well, then brother, that's a that's a non-board member. That's, exactly. you know, that's that's a guy who's not even in the passenger seat or the back seat. He's in the trunk. I mean, there's nothing he's going to do. And he said, oh, everybody on the board loves me. We all get along great. Everything's fine. I'm not worried about it. I said, no, no, brother. Let me see your bylaws. Let's take a look at this. And he said, no, no, we're fine. He called me six months later. He said, they fired me. Hmm. And I said, why? He said, some new guys got on the board and they decided that they were going to be in charge and they read the rules and they realized they could be. So they just fired me. Good guy. Hadn't done anything. Just board conflict. And uh, he said, up until that meeting, he said, I thought I was the leader. And as soon as they fired me, I realized I wasn't. Well, that's a little rough timing. Yeah. You know? you know, and one thing that they don't, uh, they don't talk about in addition to not talking about governance in seminary, uh, the, there's a flip side of the blade of the First Amendment, religious freedom. And the, the flip side of it is, is that a, a court uh, will not, and this is from the Supreme Court all the way down, get involved in uh, who the pastor is going to be in a church. Uh, whether it's the senior pastor or anybody that is in, in pastoral duties. So it's hard for pastors to understand this when I say it. It's, I think, difficult for them to comprehend that they have the lowest in terms of uh, legal rights in employment law. They have zero. Okay, explain that. Right. Explain an at-will employee that is yeah. an owner of the corporation, and literally the government is not going to get involved in a church fund. It's not going to. I mean, they'll they'll get involved in interpreting what the bylaws say, but they won't get involved in whether or not uh, Mark Driscoll is a good preacher versus somebody else. Okay, so they're just not going to do that. And the the head of the church or the board of the church or whomever might be in charge. They can make a determination at any time for any reason, with or without notice, with or without cause. We don't want that pastor working for us. Mm-hmm. And that pastor has no remedy in law. And that, that's something that I don't think people really understand. And so, again, this goes not from just the senior pastor level, but all the way down. Make sure you have an understanding as to what your job responsibilities are, what's what's required of you, uh, what, what they're looking for, because... Uh, That'll all be something that will be uh, dealt with in a, inside the church, not in a court of law. So I'd like to pivot then, if you're cool with it, talk employment agreement, intellectual property agreement, bylaws, just give the guys some categories. So uh, to appeal to my pastor friends who are listening, and I love you, um, I have had probably at least 20 phone calls in the last year, year and a half. And the call goes something like this, uh, More one that just comes to mind. It was a Saturday night, very late. I don't know this man, a mutual friend referred him. And he said, uh, Pastor Mark, I don't know what to do. I've never talked to you, but I'm going to get fired tomorrow. Okay, so here was my conversation with the pastor. And uh, it was, okay, what happened? He said, well, 
our church does nominations for the board every year on Pro-Life Sunday. I preach a Pro-Life sermon I have for 30-some years. He grew a large church. He's a Bible teacher. And he said, uh, some people in the church that are pro-choice nominated some candidates. They elected them. Now they're on the board. And my board is divided, pro-choice, pro-life. And the pro-choice new members of the board told me that if I preach the pro-life sermon tomorrow, uh, they're going to call for a vote to terminate me as the pastor of the church. I was like, okay. He said, so what do I do? I said, well, you, you got to preach that sermon. I mean, if these are your convictions for 35 years and mm-hmm. you believe that they are right in the sight of God, because they are right in the sight of God, you need to get up and be a prophet and say it. And uh, his wife was on the phone. She was bawling. And usually the wife or the spouse is like the airbag that deploys and absorbs all of the head-on collision between the board and the senior leader. Their family does. And uh, she said, but these are our people and we love them. And if they fire us, you know, who's going to take care of them? She's thinking like a mom. Sure. And this is a family and they're going to fire mom and dad. And what about the kids? And, um, and I said, I'm very, very sorry. I said, could you please send me the bylaws? And she said, uh, I, I don't know if we have a copy. Oh boy, this, the, now it's the rules. And so I asked him, I said, well, what is your, what does your employment agreement say? And he, he, his question was, quote, what's an employment agreement? I said, it's the agreement between you and the board of what it takes to fire you. And if you transition, what happens? I said, do you get severance? Do you own your intellectual property? He asked, quote, what's intellectual property? Yeah. And I said, well, you've been preaching and teaching and writing for 35 years. Do they own it or do you own it? I mean, these people just joined the board like six minutes ago. And you've right. been there 35 years. Who owns it? He's like, I don't know. He's like, well, what can you do for me? I was like, if you don't have bylaws, if you don't have an employment agreement, and if you don't have an intellectual property agreement, legally, I can, I can love you, but I can't help you. They fired him, gave him nothing, and they canceled his insurance. His wife was battling a medical condition, and they seized all of his intellectual property, and they didn't tell the church that he was fired, And they kept showing his sermons on Sundays because it was a multi-site video church. And the people in the church were still giving, thinking that he was the senior pastor when they had fired him and gutted him. And I've had 20 of these calls. And and my point is always, yes, the board needs to hold the pastor accountable, but who holds the board accountable? Because a lot of times it's not just the pastor. Sometimes the problem is with the board. And so talk to us from a bylaw standpoint, employment agreement, intellectual property agreement. Most pastors have never heard of this, but you need one like a life insurance policy. Well, you, you do. And, and uh, using that example, um, of course, I don't know any of the facts, but, but I will tell you that um, assuming that there's not an employment agreement and assuming that he was terminated in concert with the provisions of the bylaws, uh, the termination the cancellation of insurance, the continuation to use his sermons for the multi-site campuses and all of that would be perfectly permissible. According to the law. Yeah, here's why. Um, First of all, um, bylaws are not an employment agreement. And I run into this a lot where folks will say, well, I don't need an employment agreement because in the bylaws it have all the protection I need. And I go, well, wait a minute. Bylaws can be changed. Mm Mm-hmm bylaws are not going to be enforced as to whether it's a good deal or a bad deal or anything like that. As long as they're changed, if they get changed correctly, you're out. 
Well, you so, look at it. Look at it right now. Not to interrupt you, but like right now, not to get super political, but let's just have a little fun. Right now, it's like, uh, hey, we want to do a Supreme Court vote. Well, if you do, we'll just change the rules and we'll expand the court. So you can even have bylaws, and if new board members come in, they just change the number, they change the rules. This, so, I mean, in every way, you should consider your bylaws in pencil. And this is where most guys have a problem: their Bible is in pen, but their bylaws are in pencil. Right. Yeah, and a court's not going to get involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not going to throw up in the Bible and make a determination as to whether or not these are good bylaws. What they will do is they will interpret the provisions of the bylaws at the time of the event. Were things done according to the bylaws? But they're not going to. It's called judicial abstention. They will abstain from getting into anything that's religious for the reasons we talked about earlier, the First Amendment. Um, so so the, the, the first thing I would say is don't assume that you have any protection in your bylaws. Uh, and if you're a pastor, particularly a senior pastor, to your point, you need to have an employment agreement. And the employment agreement should lay out uh, exactly what's required of you. Uh, I, I think the more detail, the better. Now you can go crazy. So like you're really, going to preach, you're going to, you get this many days off. Here's what your sabbatical looks like. Here's what your benefits look like in case of termination. Time. Here's what your transition looks like. And it's always better to negotiate your deal during peacetime than wartime. Yeah. When everybody's warm and fuzzy at the very beginning, uh, when they want you that's the great time to, to negotiate it. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that if you've been there for a while, you shouldn't come back and negotiate because if things are good, most people, you know, they you're they want to want to hold on to a franchise player. Right. And so it's a good time to do it. There's never a bad time to come back around and say, hey, I'd like to get this cleared up uh, and get an agreement in place. So, so, so part of quickly, what you're talking about there, too, dude, I want to I want to show it. It not just benefits the pastor, but it benefits the church, because let's say you're in the middle of a building campaign and somebody comes along and makes that senior pastor an offer and they transition. Now the board and the church have got a real crisis. Right. Let's say that you've got a really good Bible teacher and somebody in town says, you know, we'd like to hire your guy. Our church is a block away. I bet you if he comes, all the people come. There's right. all these ways that buttoning it up saying, let's figure out what is best for the church and the pastor and their family, and then commit to some years together so that the people know that there's stable leadership, the pastor and his family know that there's continuity, and then the fundraising and the building making and the campus launching can all be guaranteed that the leader is going to be there because there's a liability on both sides. Like I know one church right now I can think of, they weren't treating their pastor very well and they were actually pretty cruel to his wife and family. And uh, they were in the middle of a major building campaign. And he's just like, I don't like the way I'm being treated. He got a much better job offer and bailed. Well, now that church and that board has got a real crisis because they're halfway through their, you know, their playoffs and their quarterback just switched teams. That's right. And so the, the employment agreement serves both and it negotiates it during peacetime. And then it sets out the conditions if and when conflict comes, here's how we resolve it. That's right. Is that accurate? Uh, you know, I could never say anything better than you do. You say it perfectly. <laughs> that is exactly right. It, it provides certainty. You know, the, the analogy I would use is the stock market does well when there's certainty. It doesn't perform well when there's uncertainty. The same thing with the church. 
The same thing with a, or a parachurch organization or a ministry. If there's certainty as it relates to leadership, then that certainty is a good thing for both sides of the equation. And that's what you get with an employment agreement and many other things. And part, part of that should be, and it should include for a content creator, like a senior pastor, like the guy you were describing earlier, um, is you want to have an intellectual property agreement. And intellectual property is the, the stuff that we were discussing. It's sermons, it's illustrations, it can be music. Curriculum, it, books, songs. All, all of that. And in secondary and tertiary levels of material that are developed off of that. So the question I wrote in an article 25 years ago, because I used to talk about this and preachers look at me like I'm crazy. And I would just ask this question, who do you think owns your sermons? Pause. Well, I do. Well, not according to the law. Uh, the law says that absent a written agreement to the contrary, that intellectual property belongs to the employer, not to the employee. If you're an employee at a church, you're being paid to be the pastor. They're paying you to be up there to preach sermons. Uh, it may come from the Holy Spirit, but once you deliver it, it's affixed in a tangible form, electronically recorded, etc. Then that intellectual property belongs to the employer. And so Let you want to get that... You want to so get that worst, cleaned up. worst case scenario. So I, I, my whole goal today is to terrify pastors. That's my whole <laughs> express goal. So I had a call recently. Um, I'll do another one. That one's probably more recent. So a couple of years ago, I got a call. Do another case study. Guy had been preaching for a lot of years. Bible teacher. Uh, I would say very good Bible teacher. Some board members came in. More liberal. Wanted to go younger. He's an older guy. He didn't really want to move on. They didn't have an employment agreement. They hadn't agreed about all this. So now the board's like, time for the old guy to move on. The old guy's like, I'm not ready. So eh, kind of an unhappy marriage settles in. Well, then finally, the board gets some guys on and they muscle up to fire the senior pastor. And so finally, they kick the old Bible teacher out. Now he transitions and he takes his, uh, he calls the staff and he says, okay, hey, I need all my sermons because he's been preaching for decades. And they're like, what do you want to do with them? He's like, well, I want to put them on the internet and maybe start a ministry or maybe give them away or maybe make it a legacy ministry through my kids and grandkids. The guy who's on staff in the tech department says, okay, well, let me run that by the board. Board chair calls and says, we own your intellectual property. And he's like, but you fired me. Yeah, we fired you and we own your sermons. They got punitive about it. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, then to heck with it, I'm just going to put them on the internet. And they said, and I quote, then we will sue you for stealing intellectual property. So now he, he's in this position where either my Bible teaching will no longer be available to the universe, or I need to lawyer up and sue my former church to get my Bible teaching out. No. The whole point is, everybody thinks they're not going to be in that position. And if you look at Jesus, he even had Judas on his board. At some point, you're going to have Judas on your board. Yep. That's right. So what would you say, uh, bylaws, what are the most crucial elements and aspects when a guy's or gal's architecting bylaws? You're like, you got to have these things in there. Otherwise, you're just leaving the front door open. Oh, my gosh. The list is there's there's so many things. Um, I I would, I would start with the, the issue we described here, and that is who, who's going to be in charge? Uh, how is the board going to be composed? How are members of the board going to be brought on? When do they roll off? Uh, what, what is the role of the senior pastor? You mentioned earlier this guy said I'm a non-voting member of the board. Well, you might as well just say I'm not a member of the board. 
I'm just yeah. the guy that gets to watch the movie. Okay. <laughs> Whatever goes down. So, you know, for example, another issue that you have is what if the board deadlocks? Like I like to oh, put yeah. a provision in our bylaws that say the senior pastor is an active and voting member of the board of directors, president, chief executive officer, et cetera. And if there should be a deadlock uh, that the senior pastor gets to vote twice to break the deadlock. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because I'm pro-pastor. I believe God called the pastors to run these churches and to be in the ministry. And uh, so that my my documents and my, my writings that you'll see all have a very pro-pastor bent. I admit it. It runs in my DNA. Okay. And so that would be examples of things. There's so many social things. One of the things that I talk to folks about is when I was a young lawyer 27 years ago, I, I always felt like whenever, no matter what the situation was, whether we're in court, in front of the IRS, whatever the situation was, we're sitting in front of somebody, I always felt like we had a one-up on them because everybody respected people in the ministry. Everybody thought, well, you're the good guys. And uh, that used to be the case, but it's not, not the case anymore. And so you have to go into it and think about when you're drafting the bylaws, what are the worst case scenarios? Not what's the best case scenario, but what's the worst case scenario? Because I'm telling you, as you've said here today, I could give you war story after war story of worst case scenarios. You would think, I cannot even believe that in Christianity that happens, but it does. So plan for the worst. Believe for the best, but plan for the worst when drafting those documents. So bylaws, crucial, kind of the overarching architecting <clears throat> structure for the senior leader, an employment agreement, agree to terms. Uh, within that as well, part of the uh, employment agreement, intellectual property agreement, and I'll just divulge the one I signed because I've got real faith. We get Bible teaching away and I preach and teach here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale. So, you know, per you, we signed up and we have a, what we call an unlimited use agreement. So for $0, the church can use all of my intellectual property, um, but I still own it. They can use it so that someday when I transition and leave, you know, the next guy isn't going to want it, all my Bible teaching to be sitting on his church website. He's going to want to do his thing and move sure. forward, and then I'll take it with me over to real faith. And that's why we have the two organizations. One's like a light bulb for the valley. The other's like a lighthouse for the nations. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to turn 50 soon, but you know, I've still got a lot of tread on the tires, but whenever I'm done, there's going to be a new senior pastor and I need to take my Bible teaching and let that person do their thing. And so part of this is setting it up early on because the worst thing can be is some people hear this right now and they'll say, we have no money, we have no buildings, we don't, you know, there's really nothing to fight over. Well, then this is the perfect time to button it up. Because what if it, what if it, what if you get given a building? What if you get a big endowment? What if, what if you do, you sell a book and, you know, hey, it's the purpose-driven life and you got to figure out what to do with that. Yeah. And um, and I would say, too, sometimes the guys that see these big pastors that are very successful, they'll think, well, they're just very lucky. Sometimes, actually, they built a system that allowed them to maximize their effectiveness. And it wasn't just an accident that got them to a level of, of influence. There, there was an yeah. intentionality behind it. Yeah. Um, in that as well, let me ask you this. So, in the bylaws and the doctrine, we talked a little bit about bylaws, employment agreement, intellectual property agreement, marriage policy, wedding policy, same-sex wedding policy. There's a ton of guys, <clears throat> they're just using bylaws that are old, or they borrowed them from denominations that are old, and the issue of same-sex marriage was not front and center. How yeah. critical is that right now? 
Well, you know, there's a difference of opinion about this, and I'll give you what mine is, and it's very fixed and firm. Uh, I, I believe that those issues should be addressed uh, in the statement of faith, in the bylaws of the church. Again, the bylaws being the foundation, the governing documents, the laws by which we're going to live. And my argument is, some, the other's argument is, well, you don't need to put a statement in there about same-sex marriage because that's in the Bible. And, you know, you can you don't have to have that in there. And you can did blah, blah, blah. And I go, well, you know, really, that's the case. We don't have to have anything about baptism or uh, Jesus. Sprinkling, what is your deal? You put it in there. You felt strong enough about baptism. Why wouldn't we put something in there about weddings and that it's only between a man and woman? And then I even go down to the one of the last things I say is that uh, the use of the property uh, and that the, the property is dedicated to the Lord. It's been given by the believers and it should only be used for biblical purposes and none other. So you can have the way, all, all this stuff in there. One, one of the things is, for example, somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know, we love you, Pastor Mark. We love being part of the church. Now, we want my son is a great guy. You've never met him, but he's getting married. We want to have the wedding here. Yeah, yeah, you're, sounds great. And he's marrying a guy. And you say, can't do it. Okay, well, th that's your personal opinion. Well, you know what? It's my personal opinion. It's what the Bible says. And in addition, it's what the bylaws say of our church. So you're completely insulated at that point, in my view. Uh, again, some say it's not necessary, that it's, it's an overplay. In the world we live in, I don't think you can overplay your hand in terms of making these things very, very clear. Well, and it's not just for you. At some point, because what most guys think is everything's fine. I'm the leader. <clears throat> Let's say you transition. Let's say you get sick. Let's say they pick a successor. How many of us have known a church that was okay until the next leader came and then it ended up in a very bad place theologically? Yeah. Happens absolutely. all the time. Yeah. That's the story of most mainline denominations. I mean, they, they started down the fairway and then they hooked to the left. And next thing you know, they're in the lake. I mean, it, it yeah. does happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I, I just would encourage, um, there's literature out there. There's, if you're interested, you want to read, yeah, where would they go to, to read and to study and to sort of do the due diligence? Well, um, it's very self-serving, but if you want to get a, just a, a nutshell and get started, you can go to the churchlawyers.com, which is a, a website we have for a practice group in our firm that uh, has all of this stuff broken down and why it's important. Uh, there's, uh, that would be a starting place. Uh, if somebody wants to reach out to me, uh, they can do that. Um, like you said, there's not a lot of books written about this. Uh, there's 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 um, there's a lot of articles that we can provide to them, um, but it's it's a it's a difficult thing in a sense. It's a specialized niche, and the reason that a lot of this information isn't publicly available is, and hear me, guys, I'm a Bible guy, okay, but I, I believe that when it comes to architecting an organization, you build it the way you build a football team. Meaning, first of all, you start with the quarterback and you ask, okay, you know, who do we got here? Do we got Russell Wilson, who, you know, is basically an escape artist? Do we got Ben Roethlisberger, who has the mobility of an oak coffee table, right? Well, who's our quarterback? And, you know, do we have Tom Brady, you know, or do we have Lamar Jackson? You know, who do we have? And then looking at it and saying, how do we build our team around the quarterback? 
And so every church needs to give themselves freedom to take the biblical principles and then find practical methods that work for the leader. So like me, I'm pulpit guy. I mean, I just took Labor Day. I took my first weekend off since Thanksgiving. I've been in the pulpit since Thanksgiving. Grace turned 50, so we went to Montana. I'm a preacher, man. I'm going to preach. I'll preach my own funeral. I got that covered. (laughs) You know, if you're not a preacher and you're a team teaching guy, that's just different. If you're a small groups person or a midweek person or a Sunday school person or a worship person, every church and leader's got their thing. And you need to custom architect the structure of the organization to fit the leader, meaning um, you wouldn't hand uh, Lamar Jackson's offense to, you know, Tom Brady. You just wouldn't. Um, it's building the church around the leader. That being said, that's where you need a relationship with legal architects. Because if you build it with your board, the problem is your board members are going to transition. They will build it for them, but the pastor is going to be there. The the board members are going to transition so they can have a voice into it. But ultimately, it needs to live through multiple boards and how to get to the next good board. And so I would strongly encourage everybody. This is just a shameless plug. And I've sent a lot of people to you privately, and I'm happy to do it today publicly. Hey, Chris. And uh, pizza's here. Pizza's here. And, uh, and within that, um, you have helped educate me. And I've been able to help educate a lot of other pastors and ministry leaders. And then I send them to you because I'm not a lawyer. When it comes to the drafting, of the, you can, I can explain the concepts, but as far as the legal architecting, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but you are, and you can help. And so I do love you. I appreciate you. And I've had a personal relationship with you to where I get to know you have a great heart for pastors and their families. And you sharing your story that you would have been sixth generation pastor. Um, I think the story you told me one time is the whole reason you got into law is your dad's buddies who were pastors were having problems and you were in law school and they asked you and you were just trying to help your dad's friends. That's how this whole thing got started. That's it. That's That's it. it. And it's a very niche area of law. So again, just to get information from you, to contact you, um, where, where should good folks go? Is there sample bylaws? Is there stuff on intellectual property agreements, stuff on um, employment agreements? What all can they get there and where do they get it? Yeah, I would, uh, I would start with the churchlawyers.com. Um, they're, all the contact information is on the website if they want to reach out to us. If they have any specific requests or anything that we can help, we have resources that we can provide to them as well. Um, but that would be the first step in having um, some sort of uh, beginning relationship. I will tell folks, uh, oftentimes they say, well, you know, I heard a story about a lawyer and it took all this time and, and, and all these custom bylaws and all that. We can do that. Uh, I also say we're kind of the men's warehouse of uh, bylaws. If you can kind of tell us what kind of suit you're wanting, uh, we can get you one tailored up and, and, and in your hands. We don't have to start from beginning. Uh, we can literally get, get you there pretty quickly because we do this all the time. Uh, church governance, but all, all types of stuff, really the whole spectrum of uh, the practice that, that touches and concerns the, the aspect of, uh, of running the business and ministry. Well, and within that, I'll just throw one thing out and then we'll close. But part of it is too, for the pastors that are hearing this, if you're not in compliance with your bylaws, you could be in real legal and uh, you could be in real um, insurance danger. So, as I understand it, with kids ministry and things on property, your insurance is covering you as long as you're compliant with your bylaws. 
if you're out of compliance with your bylaws and policies and something does happen, somebody does get hurt, something does happen, then the insurance company is not going to cover that, which then could leave your church totally, you could be looking at bankruptcy. Yeah. Well, we had a case just recently that, that touched at those points exactly. And it was uh, uh, the insurance company determined that an individual who thought he was acting on behalf of the board and the church was not. They looked at it and said, you were out of bounds and uh, that's not an insured risk. And you undertook all these actions. And so guess what? No coverage. Wow. And so it was a, it was a c- catastrophic outcome for the church. Well, yeah, and there's no pastor who says, you know, I'm just fine getting up before the congregation and doing a fundraising campaign for our legal bills. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I mean, and, and especially, too, they're saying that uh, Barna came out with a report that one in, tw- one in five churches, 20% of churches are at risk of dying and closing forever in the next 18 months. And I would submit to you that a lot of that is governance, that it used to be that the big would eat the small and now it's the fast eat the slow. And if you don't have the ability as a leader to pivot with information and crises and opens and closures, and you have a cumbersome governance structure that doesn't acknowledge a leader that can actually, like a quarterback, make audibles at the line, um, I think a lot of those churches are really feeling the pain and that they're at risk of dying. They're divided at the board level. They're divided with the staff. There's there's not a formality of who's really in charge. Everything takes so stinking long to get it approved that by the time it's approved, the, the you know things are different and you got to change the play again. And I think what this situation that we're in in America this year, between the election and COVID and everything else, I think it has exposed bad governance. And I think the pastors that are feeling the tremendous pain, it's not just living through it, it's fixing your governance so that you can actually lead and make audibles at the line and survive through constantly changing circumstances. And and so our heart, my heart is for pastors and I know yours as well. So thank you for your love and your help and your support to a lot of pastors. And um, I'm gonna ask you in closing something that I do for all the Real Faith Live uh, Real Leaders podcast. And that is I ask the person who I'm interviewing to pray. So brother, we're gonna probably do the first lawyer praying for pastors in the history of the world. We're going to do it, man. So I'm going to ask you to close our time in prayer and just pray for pastors and their families. Father God, I just thank you for this time together with Pastor Mark and the amazing things that he's doing uh, there in Phoenix and around the country and the world. Uh, Lord, I pray for those listening that you'll give them supernatural uh, power and wisdom, guidance and discernment during these very difficult times to help shepherd and guard the church, uh, the, the church of Jesus Christ, Lord, and, uh, and that you uh, would help them to, have, to be bold uh, and to be ready uh, for what is to come. And uh, we ask all of this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.